0: You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Lee Miltier. here. I am very honored today to be able to be with you and to introduce you to the Renegade Time Management Program. Um, this, of course, is the uh, information from Dan Kennedy. And, Dan, uh, please say hello to the group.
0: Well, glad to be on the phone. Have you with us?
1: Um I want to start today with something of a challenge for you. Um, why should people pay attention to the way you set and achieve goals, manage your time, and control your work, especially given that some of your ideas and methods are radically different from what we know in the mainstream world?
0: Well, the radically different issue, um, you know, when I teach, when I talk to people about advertising and marketing, I'm always telling them if you've got a small company, you or an entrepreneurial business, you dare not pay attention to and blindly emulate what really big companies are doing with their advertising. And similarly, if you're, if you're an entrepreneur and you are listening to this because you're interested in being more productive, the last thing that's going to be of much help to you is time management methodology or tools or systems that, have been developed predominantly to be sold to executives and middle managers who spend their lives in cubicles uh, on something of a nine-to-five schedule. And for the most part, if, if they do four things in a day, they think they've had a big day. Um, and so you, you see a lot of time management training. And over the years, um, uh, I've produced programs for companies in the time management business. Um, a couple of people who've had best-selling books have been clients of mine, and, um, and I've got sort of a fetish about it, so I mean, I've read, I probably own 200 time management books and tape sets and have seen pretty much everything that comes down the pike, and, and for the most part, it is built for um, somebody who, quite frankly, isn't doing much. And so you know, it's it's they have neatly organized, color coded uh, file systems, and um, they're I don't want to mention any brand names, but they're they're neat little time management books with tab dividers and color coded pens. And, uh, and and unfortunately, in the entrepreneurial world, a lot of that stuff breaks down pretty quickly. So my premise has always been that. Uh, if you want uh, really uh, different or extraordinary or exceptional results, then you're not going to get those with normal methods, and it applies to time just as it applies to anything else. My, my, my I guess my answer to the credentials question would be, um, you know, this this product has has happened and. And the NoBS time management book happened because so many people ask me um, about how in the devil I get so much done.
1: Now, most of these people would be entrepreneurs that have asked you this. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, the, uh, I don't have very, I have very few corporate environment clients anyway. But yeah, most of this comes from entrepreneurs and marketing people who uh, who come. To have an awareness, uh, particularly those that are clients of mine or in my coaching groups, and and they come to have an awareness of the the quantity. I suppose qualities for another time and another day, but the quantity of output, uh, the quantity of work that I do um, with with one support person and only one support person, and um, and they're sort of intrigued by that and they're intrigued by uh, the ways in which um, you know I limit my I limit the access to me um, and so you know if you hand somebody a month just of just a, just a list of any one month's uh, written work um, uh, setting aside almost everything else I mean I do three newsletters a month I, I, as a copywriter I'm doing to ten major client projects a month Um, I'm writing uh, advertising and sales letter and that kind of copy as well as product for the businesses I'm involved in Um, I'm averaging four to six one-day consultations a month I've got 72 people in coaching groups who require a little bit of attention Um, I've done it I've had at least one book a year published for the last decade and stepped up the pace a little bit last year and going into next year, I still speak on the average of once a month. And uh, for that in the consulting, the coaching groups, um, I'm traveling now only four to five days a month, but still. Um, and, you know, day-to-day business stuff and managing the money and fooling around with the racehorses. And uh, people look at all that, and it looks to them like three people's workload.
1: For a year. <laughs> For a year,
0: yeah, and uh, so you know, people are people are, are 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 interested in that. They're interested in, you know, what we talked about in the Renegade Millionaire System—the whole issue of of autonomy, um, uh, uh, the fact that. I have and have re engineered my business life several times to enable me to be where I want to be and work only with who I want to be working when I want how I want and so forth and so you know if people are uh interested in or 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 envious of those sorts of things then um, then then they ought to look at the methods that I use and it, it it's quite common by the way I had Client here oh, a couple of weeks ago, and he he expressed um, um, a literal envy. You know, he said, "Geez, I, I you know I sure wish I could I could operate my business life like you do, and pretty much get everybody to come to me and go all day long, literally without interruption, by phone or fax or in person." Um, he was astounded that he was here for the entire day, and, of course, we were not interrupted once. And, and he says, I just wish I could do that. And I proceeded to quickly tell him how he could do that, and, of course, then he was unwilling to do any of the things that were necessary, you know, in order to uh, do it. But uh, there, there is a method to this madness, and, and it is usable by people other than me.
1: And for anyone who hasn't been a... Uh, really a, a raving fan of yours for a long time. They don't really know from that list that you just uh, talked about that you say you're only speaking about once a month. But you used to speak, um, what, 10 times a month?
0: Well, my peak, not quite that but My peak years were uh, between 60 and 80 engagements a year.
1: And you still maintained...
0: I still pretty much did much this same load, um, a little less... Uh, copywriting for clients and a little less consulting, but pretty much the same load. Plus, for a number of those years, um, I, I also still had our mail order business for all of my information products, which I sold in 1999, and um, and at one time, for a number of those years, five employees in that business. And uh, and I had the Inner Circle newsletter business, which I sold uh, to, to Bill Laser last year, so um, yeah, I, I, I I did for a, well, almost a decade, nine years, manage all of that while still being on the road, um, a hundred plus days a year. Uh, on average, you figure every speaking engagement is really two to two and a half days of travel, depending on how efficiently you organize all that. Today, it'd be four days for everyone, but, um in our post 9/11 world. But uh, yeah, it's actually real luxury to be to be stationary in one place for 8, 9, 10, 12 days at a time.
1: You know, uh, Dan, one of the feedbacks I got from the Renegade Millionaire system uh, that we did last year was that most people basically decided that you were superhuman or they insisted that their business is so different from yours and that your radical methods won't work for them. You know, when you hear this, and I'm sure you have, how do you respond to that?
0: Well, I I, I get the latter more often than I do the former. Um um it, 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 but but to knock that one out, you know there's um, there's no genetic uh, uh disposition or magic gene um, that I'm aware of anybody documenting um, for, wouldn't that or, be nice to bottle? Yeah for yeah, a pill you could take to be super productive well it, it, there 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 is, but you know they they I have think that's addictive illegal side effects <laughs> that's right. That's um, that's the, what that's the desperate housewives episode with everybody gulping down the kids' ADD medicine. Right. Um, uh, but but uh, you know there's there's nothing inherently um, uh, special about me um, that that makes me any more productive uh, by instinct or or uh, A genetic advantage than anybody else and as far as the you know my business is different thing i mean that unfortunately is the knee-jerk excuse um that pops out of everybody's uh, subconscious mind and then their mouth um for not doing all sorts of effective things and so it's exactly the same thing that is said about the type of advertising and marketing that I teach, then is the same thing said about the time management methodology that I use is, 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 is the person who immediately wants to insist that their circumstances are different. In fact, we're now sort of joking about it because what happens in question-and-answer sessions at events, I noticed at the last super conference, three different people ask questions uh, of different people each one, and, and Bill had the huge, but my business is different poster up on the wall. Bill Glazer, yeah. yeah. And and each one began their question like this I probably shouldn't say this, but my business is different.
1: I was there. I and heard into that. To
0: the question, you know. Right. And, um, you know, why? I mean, look, all, all, all businesses have the same fundamental functions in common. Um, they have either a customer or a client or a patient. They provide either a, a, a good or a service or both. Um, uh, they may go to the customer location or bring the customer to their location. They have to have some method of attracting new ones and some method of selling repeatedly to and keeping the ones that they already have. And, and so the the differences between the cosmetic dentistry practice and the manufacture of widgets that go inside uh, windshield wiper uh, uh, cases to the furniture store, the differences are really very, very small and very nominal. The commonalities are much greater and most of my approach to time and to communication and to customer and client management has 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 a lot more to do. First of all, with with the individual's attitude and the individual's decisions about all this, um, and, and then with with universal principles that it does with things that can be said to be business specific. Um, Everybody thinks that their customers or clients can't be trained. Everybody thinks that in their business they have to be immediately and constantly uh, accessible. And in industry after industry where these beliefs are uh, religion, um, at least one person, and in in many cases many, uh, who have, initially skeptically begun to adopt some of the same things that i do uh, have proven that wrong i mean we have in my one coaching group uh, we have a commercial uh, a realtor who deals with apartment buildings and commercial properties and investors and um, if you've got a room full of those realtors together They would all argue that you've got to take the call when the call comes. Uh, Certainly, if somebody is investing hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars with you, they're going to insist on having your cell phone number and be able to call you day or night. Uh, You've got to go meet with every one of these prospects, and yet... Uh, My guy's doing exactly the opposite, and in fact, making the new client jump through hoops, fill out a form, and pay money before he can even have a telephone conversation with him. Um, In the mortgage industry, Tracy, of course, as you know, um, deals exclusively with residential realtors who all hold open houses on weekends and all, of course, think they, as soon as they have somebody who might want to make an offer, they need to be able to get on the phone to their mortgage person. And uh, Tracy makes a very high six-figure income in the mortgage business and uh, turns the cell phone off every day at 5 o'clock and turns the cell phone off on the weekend and does not check messages and does not return calls and trains his realtors to do business with him in that way. And I could go industry by industry by industry by industry and give you example example after example. In each of those cases, the majority of the people in those businesses would insist um, that, that they could not possibly use my methods.
1: Well, um, with everything that you said, I mean, that all is boiled down to the mindset of what they've learned in the past, that they have to be there for everybody's whims. And so what you're teaching in this program basically is an entirely different renegade type of mindset, right?
0: Well, yeah, it definitely starts with, with the decisions you make about uh, how you 're going to do business and how people are going to do business with you and and what kind of value you are going to place on your time and you know one of the things that that I think people really need to get a grip on is that uh, at times the only asset they 've got that can 't be replaced and replenished um, uh, 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 prospects. Uh, in most cases, there's pretty much an unlimited number of them, um, and in uh, any one uh, customer, client, or patient prospect uh, who goes by the wayside, is quite easily replaced with another. Uh, clients or customers are are equally replenishable and replaceable. If they weren't, everybody would be out of business almost as fast as they got into business because there's inevitable customer and client loss. I mean, everybody has customers or clients or patients who move away, who die, whose brother-in-law gets in the business and they decide to go do business with them. Everybody, no matter how good a job they do, loses some customers and clients every year, and they obviously figure out how to replace those. So replacing one or two more that are lost because of the way you choose to do business, no big deal. Uh, money's replaceable, of course. Uh, physical assets: building burns down, tornado, hurricane, flood, tsunami, pestilence—you uh, know, etc People replace uh, physical things all the time. The the only thing that you can't replenish is the minute we just used. Uh, you can't that that's gone and it is gone forever. And, and so, uh, the mindset has to be about protecting that asset as the most precious and valuable asset that there is.
1: For those who haven't listened to the Renegade Millionaire System, uh, when I first, Dan, when you first sent me the room load of materials to go through, in fact, there's a picture of me with all those materials on your website. I remember thinking uh, I was going to faint. Uh, You sent almost that much of uh, the mountain of your work that you had done on time management to be going back like, I guess it was 25 years. And I have to tell you, I was a little surprised at just how consistent you've been, you know, that whole time that. you've been writing about and speaking about time management. So the question is, what has changed most in your thinking or practices about time that you know now that you didn't know, say, 10, 15 years ago?
0: Actually, not a a lot has changed, and it's nuanced changes. Um, You know, it's another one of those things that a lot of people, when um, when they are first exposed to the way that I conduct business in the way that I manage time. I get the, well, of course you can do that now because you're established uh, and you have reputation and you're rich and famous. But I'm starving and poor and nobody knows who I am and I'm just starting out. And so again, my situation is different. And um, there's, a, there's, there's a great story in psycho of Max Maltz waiting for his first patient call you know, sitting in his cosmetic surgery office with the phone desperately waiting for it to ring and then doing having to exert massive self-control uh, not to immediately invite the person in in the next hour because obviously there were no appointments. And pretty much everything that I do now, um, I was doing long before any sane person would think that i could financially afford to do it and incidentally the exact opposite is true Um, most of the time management and time protection and time value and productivity methods that i use actually increase the desire of the marketplace they don't suppress it they actually help marketing they don't hurt it Um, But anyway, there's really not much that's different. I've gotten more extreme.
1: Yes, Uh, you have. I've known you a long time. You have.
0: um, And a little bit of that is a reflection purely of supply and demand, that as you get better and better and better at multiplying the demand so that it legitimately far exceeds the supply of you and your time that is available You become emboldened. Uh, Some of it, though, is purely the result of experience, Um, discovering that you can. And, um, you know, I still underestimate, um, as extreme as many people think that I am, I still underestimate how extreme you can be, what you can get away with, what you can demand uh, of people and how you can train people to uh respond to you in the way that you want to um so you, I, I guess i've gotten more extreme i've certainly gotten more passionate about it um as as um at age 50 um i think you naturally look at it a little differently than you do uh, at age 25 um uh, and so there's a there's more of a sense of a limited supply at the time and uh, tolerance for um, for uh, you know it being wasted and abused um, is less
1: Do you still have that life clock that that tells you yeah how many Hours and days you have left?
0: Yeah, you can preset it based on whatever you decide your life expectancy number is. That's quite intimidating, actually. Yeah, I'm sure it will reach a point where it gets turned to the wall. Um, But, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm very sensitive uh, and have made myself extremely sensitive. And and I guess the other thing I would say that... um, the The change really, over the years has not been so much um in what I do and how i do it um but in the in the need I see to do it and the need for other people uh to uh do it i mean we've gone from you know i I, I built my businesses. Over many years before, when FedEx was a novelty, and then fax, and about the fastest thing anybody could do to you then was fax, and 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 you know, I was one of the first people to have one of them things in my office, and some people still didn't have them, and you know, and and we've gotten to the point now of just instant, constant, and unrelenting communication and uh, it all puts more pressure on people um, on the user side uh, to some extent it's a convenience but the convenience is uh, is it, a bad trade-off actually for most people uh, because the the pressure uh, the quantity of the communication uh, has so multiplied um, people have given up you know, all of their mental recovery time, uh, the little five minutes here, ten minutes there that used to be built into every business day. Um, I mean, I I half joke, I'm really not... I mean, people take it as funny and it works from the stage as funny, but I mean, it's extremely disturbing to me to be in an airport restroom and have see the guy standing at the urinals with one hand on the privates and the other hand holding the cell phone are talking into. And, you know, the four, go- four people leave an office to walk down the street to go to lunch. Instead of talking to each other and giving themselves a little breather, uh, they're all on their cell phones, uh, all the way down in the elevator, all the way out the door, all the way down the sidewalk, uh, all the way into the restaurant. Um, you see them trying to do two things at the same time, where they're talking on the cell phone and talking to the clerk at the counter, they're ordering some, something from, and so all the recovery time's gone, and and it's clearly causing a lot of you know what I call brain overload, and people are making mistakes, and uh, so for all of these reasons, I think it's become increasingly important to to take a different approach to how you control your time and how you control access. So, you know, what what I was doing 10 and 15 years ago, I'm only doing more so um, and and more rigid about and am finding people that 10 years ago, 5 years ago, shook their heads and wanted to hear nothing about it are now asking how they can do it too. And it's a representation of the fact that they've just reached the point of overload.
1: Do you also think that because we're so accessible to oftentimes uh, customers and clients that they catch us off guard and we make mistakes or we agree to things because we haven't had time to think about it?
0: I think you're absolutely right. I think there's no virtue in, in thoughtless a response. And... There's an enormous amount of that that goes on. Um, and I very rarely catch myself doing it, but, uh, but I catch myself from time to time. And, and almost every time that I do it, I get myself into trouble. Um, uh, by that I mean agreeing to something that with careful thought you wouldn't have agreed to exactly the way you just did. Um,
1: and that's often because we are. A lot of times we want to please our clients or make people happy, and I know I'm guilty of it. And well, know. I think
0: it's that. I think it's you know there's a whole range of marketing issues around the issue of commoditization. But I think even more so than that, it's 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 what you said. It's the person just is it, it, it has not a millisecond to give it any thought, and because of the constant and instant access, the person has not only gotten to them perhaps at an inopportune time, but they've gotten to them, and they've gotten to them with no advance notice, but they've gotten to them when they were trying to do something else with those five minutes. And now they're rushing through the conversation. And so the kind of mistakes, you know, the agreeing to things you shouldn't agree to get made, Temperamental responses occur. Um, You know, uh, uh, the the nerves are frayed and and that person senses it and hears it. Um, The same thing with email, by the way. It's not even just the phone. It's um, the, the constant access and the expectation that that thing's gonna be answered instantly and people choose to answer them instantly. And so there's all this communication happening in the business environment into which is going very little thought uh, and it 's actually a very dangerous thing
1: well i've learned from you uh, to basically return calls and not answer calls anymore if I can help it. Um, let me ask you this because this is why you're talking has really um, i've got this question in my head about basically when did you first begin to develop your ideas and your approach on the whole time management thing and being in this renegade, different from everybody else mindset and make them, you know, come to you versus you go to them kind of thought?
0: I um, I tell people, and we talked about it in the renegade millionaire system, I mean, the first whatever term you want to use for this stuff, self-improvement, personal development, success education. The first stuff I ever encountered was the old original Earl Nightingale uh, Lead the Field program. And uh, the the thing that, out of everything that was on those recordings, um, and, um, and I got them, by the way, when they were on records, um, which I always then have to explain
1: just, what a record is.
0: Yeah, this yeah this was a visual media. Right now, I would be shaping my hands roughly the size of a record, and I would be explaining to people that there was this a big frisbee. flat plastic thing. Yeah. Um. But uh, the the thing that that stuck with me, that so validated what I was already thinking, but had no validation for that that Earl said was that. If you had no, if you were setting out to do something, and it almost mattered not what that was, um, and you had no successful role models or examples, and had to figure it out without such a person to observe or look at or study or have mentor you or, or learn from, all you would have to do would be to look at what the majority was doing and start by doing the opposite and you would pretty much be headed in the right direction because the majority is always wrong, and they are especially always wrong about money. The statistical proof of that being, of course, that the overwhelming majority of the people have none, never get any, and finish their lives without it uh, to the extent that and I don't remember the exact percentages, but, you know, there's it, it, it's something like, Uh, 90% of the teenagers have more money in their bank accounts than 90% of the 65-year-olds in America. Oh, my goodness. Um, And and I could be off a little bit on the percentage, but but the concept is accurate. Um, And and so the general concept is, and it's been a governing principle for me ever since, is that if you don't know what's right... You could certainly figure out what's wrong just by looking at what everybody's doing, and um, it, 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 and it's certainly true in in my other disciplines in advertising and marketing, um, and 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 so I sort of began applying that intentionally and deliberately to everything that I did, and it wasn't very long into doing business that it became apparent to me that the way most people handled their time um, was pretty much the same way they handled their money and that it had to be wrong. Um, it, It clearly was not effective. Now, it took me longer to figure out what the alternatives were, but it became very, very clear to me in 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 the early 70s, um, and with my first and only job um, being judged woefully unemployable, um, and, and correctly so. Well,
1: isn't that a good thing for
0: entrepreneurs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually was extremely helpful. I mean, it's the, you know... It clears up the problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It limits the options you know, so dramatically. <laughs> That's right. The, the uh, bridge is burned. You have to keep forward. Uh, but in that job, I was a territory sales rep with five states, and they did what most companies do. You know, they get you hired, and then they send in one of their their grizzled pros from the other territory to live with you for a week and teach you the ropes. And by the way, the guy was very good at teaching me every imaginable way to cheat on your expense account. Uh, but uh, you which is know,
1: another seminar.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, especially if you happen to own the company or be in management. <laughs> That's correct. Um, but um, you know, it, it, it was just abundantly clear to me, looking at him and then talking to the other reps, uh, just the way they managed how they went into their territory and who they called on. And I mean, I, it, 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 the mechanism was go to a city and go to all the accounts and walk in. And and that's still the mechanism, by the way. Most territory salespeople who sell to retail, um, and so I was calling on bookstores and gift stores and toy stores and so forth, they go from city to city in their territory with their sample case in their hand, and they march in unannounced and present themselves. And... It, 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 it just, that's the way you do this. Here's your computer printout, and if you go to Ann Arbor on Tuesday, you take all the accounts at Ann Arbor, and uh, you try and kind of efficiently route yourself with a map ahead of time, and then you just appear. And it was like two weeks into this when it, I figured out, well, this doesn't make any sense. Why not have appointments? And the answer to that, by the way, was if you try and set appointments in advance, they won't agree to see you, which my logic then said, if they don't want to see me, why do I want to go see them anyway? I'd rather go see somebody who wants to see me, or we're saying the wrong things to get them to want to see us, right? And so pretty quickly, my mechanism began sending mail ahead of time and, of course, saying I'm going to be in Ann Arbor on Tuesday, and here's the way i routed myself, and I'll be coming to see you at 10, and I'm going to see Joe at 11, and I'm going to see Charlie at 12, and I'm going to see Mary at 1, and so expect me. And I called it forced appointment setting. And, um, and so now I saw 80% of the people I went to see. And as near as I could tell, the average rep was seeing 20% of the people that he he, he went to see. And consequently, for that and a number of other reasons, I very quickly was not selling everybody to the point that the sales manager was asking me to take Fridays off because I was making everybody else look bad. um, I'm serious. I'm sure you are. (laughs) But, you know, so so Nightingale's principle, I mean, if you buy into that concept, it too is a great life simplifier. Because anytime you're looking at a crowd, at a group, at an, at an industry norm, at the way things are done by this group, you start out by figuring that if the majority of them are doing it that way, there's a better way. Um, and with time, I mean, this is how you know that things like walking around umbilical cord connected to your cell phone is wrong. You don't have to know what's right to know that it's wrong purely by observing the fact that everybody's doing it. Um, you, you know that being constantly and easily and indiscriminately accessible uh, is wrong. Even if you had no idea what the right answer was, you could figure out that that was wrong. Uh, being Uh, pretty much everybody has become email obsessed. You know, they check it 12 times a day. Um, That's why Starbucks and restaurants and uh, 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 car dealership waiting rooms and doctor waiting rooms all have Internet access. It's so everybody can be checking their email all the time. And if you look around and you see that that's what everybody does, you don't have to know what's right to know that that has to be wrong. Um, And if you you equate time to money, which in business that's precisely what it is, and in fact more so it's actually the the leverage to money, Um, and you know that the majority of the people are wrong about money, you have to logically conclude they're wrong about time, and then you look at their behavior and you know that it is ineffective, and you have to go in search of alternative methods. Um, and so very early, I was going in search of and figuring out alternative methods.
1: You know, um, I've been in your office a number of times, and um, I've noticed that you have all of your win photos with your horses and that your wind, you know, you're driving races on the wall, and there's always an empty picture frame hanging up there. What's that all about?
0: Um, well, it's it's a strategy that, in that particular context has not been working all that well lately. Um, it's, <laughs>
1: but it has worked.
0: It has yeah, worked, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, um, you know, it's a psychological device. Um, it, it, it's from uh, the first person I heard of doing it was Arnold Palmer. And Arnold for, uh, pre, I believe, his entire career, um, he, he's, he had big, they get when they win a golf tournament, well, you know, because of cleft. Well, I don't, you might not know, come to think of it, because I said win a golf tournament. Um, when, when, they win a, when they win a golf tournament, um, actually nobody I know who golfs would know this. Jeff wouldn't know this. No. no. When they win a golf tournament, they get like these medallions, and they may get a trophy, they may get a jacket, but they always get it's sort of a uniformly signed med, sized a medallion, something akin to an oversized hood ornament. And so Palmer had this giant table in his office in which he would embed these medallions as he got them in its top. And uh, every time he embedded one, he routed out the hole for the next one. Um, the, the message, of course, being that you are going to get a next one. Um, and so the, the idea of the empty picture frame on the wall next to the other wind pictures is that some point in time preferably sooner not later uh you know i'm going to win another race um and it really it's a psychological device and of course it is a it is an extension of goal setting and you know the the interesting thing about that is there are there are even some time management gurus if you will past and present who are actually telling people not to set goals
1: i i have heard that lately yes and um which is
0: mind boggling, yeah, or not to write them down um, um, and, and certainly not to tell them to anybody and um, and I think it was all bad advice when I first heard it, and I think it's bad advice now um, I, I I think you um, you 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 have to be thinking about the what's next, the what's next, the what's next and and you have to be thinking, eight, nine steps down the road, both from a a stimulus standpoint um, uh, of making your entire subconscious system interested enough in what's going on to actually do some work, um, and from a practical standpoint. I mean, you and I have talked privately, at my continuous amazement, at a number of clients that I work with or coach, um, entrepreneurs who never seem to see beyond today or tomorrow, the next step in a sequence of what they're doing. And, and a lot of what is in the renegade millionaire system about money, the entire future banking process uh, that, that I discussed there, is, is about setting goals and, and actually exerting control, not just over the present uh, but over the, uh, the uh, future. So,
1: how could say an average person, you know, is not racing horses and is not playing golf and winning for sure? But I mean, could they set up like a, a file system for their next big
0: client or? Um... Well, yeah, but, yeah, the, yeah. The psychological part of this, I mean, can be done. You know, any number of ways. Um, there, there, there are people who have. Uh, well, I think you interviewed Les Brown. Les Brown tells the story of writing himself. That, big check and carrying the check around.
1: Right. He did. It was very good.
0: Um, And, um, you know, I've I've, a client who has the photographs, they're not like out in the waiting room for display, but he has the photographs of every client who has been worth over a quarter of a million dollars to him on the wall, and he has the empty picture frame just as I have the empty picture frame.
1: Oh, that's good. You know,
0: for the next one.
1: That's Um, a great one for everybody to
0: use. And, um, and um so you know the the, the psychological trigger aspect of this um, it, 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 there's there's a way to do it certainly to figure it out for every business and every occupation and every uh you know career um i I think the 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 practical extension of it the practical side of it is that um, you find i find that the, the millionaire and the multimillionaire, the from scratch millionaire and multimillionaire entrepreneurs that I work with are all um, constantly uh, writing goals, writing plans, rewriting goals, massaging those goals, uh, constantly doodling and noodling and figuring out um uh, what their business is going to look like, three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, what the bank balance is going to look like, uh, what what the lifestyle is going to look look, look, look look like. And And I think most people don't spend enough time on that. They don't give enough attention um, to this real um, internal level of self-motivation that, is necessary you know when you set out i mean if somebody bought these tapes to be super productive you know when you set out to be super productive that requires a different level not just of skill and a different set of methods uh than you use to be routinely and ordinarily productive it requires a different level of self-motivation well
1: one of the the Phrase that I keep hearing you say is, you know, what we look at, what we see, um, you know, since we're self fulfilling prophecies, you know, what we think about ourselves and what we think, you know, as Napoleon Hill says, always comes true. And since people aren't envisioning what they want to happen in the future, they're pretty much reacting to life.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, you're right. I use that language a lot. I mean, I I sit with clients and um, usually, even in a full day of consulting while they want to dive into the nitty-gritty mechanics of what it is that they're doing, I usually back them up, and I, I will usually talk with them about, you know, tell me what your what 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 you want your business to look like three, four, five years from now, what you want your business life to look like three, four, five years from now. Uh, because uh, as we know from abundant research and from Dr. Maltz's work, the subconscious mind operates with pictures. Um, it translates language and words and written instructions into mental images. And, and so when you're setting up your targets, if you will, what you're going to and what you want to be pulled to, you need to do it in, in, in visual terms. And it also, you know, it forces people to think in a different way. Uh, when, when I ask you what do you want your, your business to look like, Five years from now, your mind immediately does something differently for you than if I say, you know, tell me what you want your sales to be five years from now. Uh, Tell me what you want your bank balance to be five years from 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 now, or 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 your balance sheet. Um, And and so it does different things. Uh, But but you're absolutely right. I mean, look, most people are uh, almost entirely reactive, and. and, and and not setting goals by the way, and not precisely and tightly managing your time and your day um, allows you to be that uh, and, and and so most people are uh, getting up in the morning and going to work. and for the most part, they are going to work with very little preconceived, Um, idea of what is supposed to be accomplished that day, uh, what's supposed to happen, um, how it's supposed to happen. Very little preconceived structure. If you take most people who've been through any of the popular time management seminars and have come out the other end with one of these whiz-bang notebooks with the tabs and the pages and the colored pens and the and the pages are typically divided into fifteen-minute or ten-minute, or even five-minute little increments. If you get a hold of most of them, you're going to find they got four or five things on them for the whole day. Um, and and if they're using uh, a, a to-do lists or some variation thereof, um, there's there's not a lot happening there either. Um, and so you know, most people have a system that's overbuilt for what they're actually doing and and they start the day by just showing up and and when you do that um other people and events uh take over and and you know nature uh, nature abhors a vacuum and so if you leave a vacuum uh, something's going to fill it and then you get to spend all day and all week and all month reacting to whatever the hell fills it, and and sort of one of the first tenets of really being exceptionally productive is to break that cycle.
1: You know, Dan, um, both of us uh, sort of grew up in the uh, speaking field, and there was um, a lot of talk about positive thinking and negative thinking, and. I know from just reviewing all your stuff that you've written extensively about the fallacy of what you call militant positive thinking. And in your writing, you advise making a list of all the obstacles that you can think of that might be faced when you're trying to reach a goal. Now, my question is, why isn't such a list an exercise in negative thinking, and why do you advise doing it?
0: Well, you spoke on programs with, the late Dr. Peel as did I and uh, so I mean no disrespect to Norma Vincent Peel um, uh, and nor incidentally do I do I invalidate anything he wrote I invalidate most people's interpretations um, of what he wrote um, but there's another very good book um, that's hard to find it's out of print but um, and it was written by Dr. Edward Kramer, and the title is The Positive Power of Negative Pre- Preparation.
1: Tell, tell us the author again.
0: Uh, Edward Kramer.
1: Edward Kramer, okay.
0: And uh, so The Positive Power of Negative Preparation. The, the corollary to this, by the way, in selling and in marketing is that a lot of salespeople hope they never hear an objection, and... You know, they'll leave one as the elephant in the room, unspoken and unaddressed, out of fear about the whole thing, whereas in direct response copywriting, where we're selling through media, there is no interaction. And so, if, you, if you're smart about it, one of the things that you always do is create a list of every possible reason somebody might have for not buying, uh, not responding. Um, from the obvious and the logical and the rational and the reasonable reasons to the goofy and far-out and idiotic reasons, and then you make sure you answer them all somewhere in the copy that you write. And the reason you do that is because there are objections. And in selling, it's very, very rare to ever... Uh, confront a prospect face to face, or via sales letter, or television infomercial, or any media, that has no objections to the proposition put in front of them. So uh, uh, the reality is the, the the truthful and accurate view of selling is is that the prospect has objections. Similarly, the truthful and accurate view about getting anything done is that there are obstacles, and and it's very very rare that you or I are ever going to decide we're going to do something of any significance at all and just sail from point A to its completion uh, without somebody throwing a monkey wrench in work. And, and so to pretend that we are um, or to refuse to acknowledge that fact um, and then be unpleasantly surprised, um, purely to be able to fly the flag above our desk of positive thinking, um, you know, to me is silly. Um, I always hesitate to ruin Deadwood for you because you usually watch it on Tuesdays. That's correct. But I'll ruin Sunday. (laughs) That's okay. Uh, um, In the last Sunday's episode, the, the guy shows up in Deadwood. For those people who don't know what Deadwood is, by the way, It's a great entrepreneur show. I mean, you should watch it. It's on HBO. It's the
1: Sopranos in the
0: 1800s. That's exactly what it is, yeah. And so it's an old west town that was the last uh, town not to be in the territories. and uh, It's basically a gold mining town, and there's two warring entrepreneurs, and essentially, to a great degree, it is the Sopranos um, in the old west. And... uh, Sort of as a side story, so it really won't ruin the episode for you. Um, The inventor shows up in town um, in Sunday night's episode with a bicycle. And it's one of big, high, you know, with a front wheel of the bicycle like they did in the 1800s. It works real high. And nobody's seen one before, you know, he shows up with the bicycle. And uh, so everybody is in awe, you know, and is gathered to look at this thing and. And um, and somebody proceeds to challenge him that there's no way he can ride that thing through the city without falling over. And this turns into a gambling deal. Um, and so it's like eight to one against him being able to ride down the main, which the main thoroughfare of that city, For those of that town, for those that don't watch the show, this is the old west of the 1800s. It's dirt and mud and holes and um, lepers lying in the street and piles of horse dung and, you know, you name it. And the sidewalks are, of course, wood boardwalks, narrow, and usually with stuff in front of, so in front of the store there's going to be barrels of something out on the boardwalk and there's going to be a chair here and a dog sleeping there and whatever. And so the betting begins on him riding through the street, and he wisely um, creates two wagers, not one, one riding through the street and the other one riding the same distance down the boardwalk. And at the very end, after the betting has been done and the odds have been set and all the money's been in, he, like, does the, oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to do that after you clear away all the obstacles. So nothing is in my path down the boardwalk. And as I sat there and watched it, you know, I thought it would be great if we could get them to do that with every one of our wagers where we're going to start a company and, oh, by the way, Uh, somebody else is going to go clear away all the obstacles. That would be cool. That would. I would be much more motivated to do a lot of things that I talk myself out of now um, if that was the case, but it ain't. Um, And, and, you know, to pretend that it is, um, you know, it's, it's not only foolish, but it's a guaranteed time suck at some point along the way because the the unanticipated, unplanned-for, uh, ugly surprise for which you have no Plan B and you have no Plan C. Charles Jones's quote was, "You know, plan on your plan going wrong, so you have a second plan and a third plan for when the second one goes wrong because it will." And if you don't do that, um, uh, then it's going to be a bigger time suck when it happens. Than it was to to create those Plan Bs and Plan Cs uh, in the first place, and and again to refuse to to do this strategically and intelligently, just to be able to fly the flag of positive thinking, uh, isn't very smart. Can
1: I just stop you for a second, because? What would you say is the percentage of, of entrepreneurs who really do have plan B and plan C in place?
0: Well, of new ones who are like becoming entrepreneurs for the first time or, or launching their first business venture, uh, virtually none. Um, of experienced ones, surprisingly few, even after getting their nose bloodied Repetitively,
1: And why do you think that is when it's so obvious that no matter what great plans we make, there are things that will happen that we have no control over?
0: I think part of it is this, I don't want to be negative. Okay. And, 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 and I don't want to think negatively. And I definitely don't want to voice negativism. And so it is ignoring the 300-pound elephant in the room. Uh, I think some of it is they don't want to take the time to do it.
1: Well, isn't uh, it very naive? Not oh yeah, to...
0: yeah. It's well, it's beyond naive. Yeah, it's stupid. It, yeah, it is stupid. Um, and 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 then there's you know the yin yang theory, the two sides of every coin theory that every strength is its corresponding weakness. And you know, I mean, one of the great strengths of entrepreneurs is is arrogance. Is, is this incredible optimism that says we can, you know, turn mud into buildings and that we can mold the world to, uh, to behave as we want it to behave. And, and it's a great strength, but it has within it a great weakness, you know, and it, it causes us often to, to be in the, you know, the ready-fire-aim mode, uh, to, be, to be running headlong, uh, toward the brick wall, without having bothered to round up some expo- some explosives and put on a helmet mm-hmm. and um, and so you know it 's important to temper that. you see some of the and of course there, there are a few, but some of the great entrepreneurial partnerships over the years, if you study them um, uh, I just had my Walt group at Disney, and so if you if you paid attention to Walt. Um, there might not have been all of Walt's success without Roy. And, you know, Roy's the was the negative nabob guy in the corner constantly saying, wait a minute, how in the hell are we going to pay for this? And, you know, what happens when everybody on that ride gets sick? And what happens, you know, and, and, and they actually serve a useful purpose. Um, and, and so when you're by yourself, you kind of need to to temper optimism so that it doesn't turn into blind optimism or stupid optimism or or, or or arrogance with some planning and you know the worst thing that happens with a plan B is the best thing that happens with a plan B you don't need it um, but better to have it kind of like um, I don't like small planes anyway um, and and I think I've only been in a, truly in a private plane with somebody three or four times in my entire life. Um, but each time I've, like, inquired as to whether we had parachutes. And it was not my intent to use it. Uh, but seemed like better to ask the question while we were still on the ground than, you know, when the engines quit at 20,000 feet. Right. And... Um, Uh, So, you know, I'm I'm really a very big parachute guy. I mean, I act under the assumption that what I put down on paper probably ain't going to happen exactly the way I planned it. And where is it going to derail? And if it does, how are we going to respond to that?
1: Um, I, I guess I've known you close to over 20 years, and, and I do know that if I ever tell you about my plans, the first thing you do is tell me, "Well, here's three things that can go wrong. Are you prepared for those things?" And that's been very beneficial for me. Training. Well, it's not my... always welcome. <laughs> well,
0: I don't mean by you. I mean in
1: general. Oh no, and you know, and that's true. Some people, you know, say, you know, make a joke. Well, Dan will always tell you what goes wrong, but it's because you will bring up what will go wrong that people will actually have some kind of awareness or plan or, or something. I mean, I know I don't get on an airplane without knowing if this pl- flight isn't going, what's the next flight?
0: I do exactly the same thing. And anybody who's traveled extensively, you would think would do that.
1: Also, you and I both now used to travel at night to go speak in the next city. Now we have to travel in the morning because everything does go wrong. So, I mean, we just take that we just assume things go wrong, and if we get there a few hours early, that's great, but we're going to at least get there.
0: Well, you know the, uh, the, um, the Murphy's law thing, the Murphy's Law rules. I mean everything takes longer than it's expected. It costs more than you budgeted. Somebody screwed up is going to be involved in the process. The vendor who was really good last week has, will have lost. Their mind, their best employee this week—all um, of that stuff's real. And you know, it's people treat it as a joke, but it isn't. It's it's extremely real. And and in many respects, the more you're trying to accomplish, and the bigger the things are you're trying to accomplish, the more obstacles and monkey wrenching and incompetence uh, you're likely to encounter. And far better to plan for it in advance than to try and cope with it uh, spontaneously as it occurs.
1: Let me switch gears for a second. Um, As I was going through yourself, I noticed that in in almost every one of the books and tapes and time management that you mention the importance of environment. Somehow, one way or another, you talk about the environment. And I know in the old million-dollar thinking series, you said that you can't do million-dollar thinking in an environment that makes you feel like a pauper. I know in the Renegade Millionaire, we talked a little bit about peak productivity environment. Um, Why do you think that the environment you work in is so important?
0: I... um... I can work under the worst of circumstances and um, pretty much block everything out. And so I, you know, I can write copy in an airport with. You are amazing. Yes, these you can. Eight people sitting around me having the cell phone conversations about their hysterectomies and affairs, and, <laughs> uh, and I actually. Or their
1: sex life. <laughs> yeah, and
0: I mean, I I I actually can can hear the conversations and still write copy. Um, but but but, most people can 't and and it 's not necessarily advisable, even if you have the ability. I mean you want to give yourself every advantage and edge that you possibly can um, in order to be as productive as you possibly can and i 've just found that environment is a very, very, very big part of that. And again, there's you know there's practical stuff and there's psychological stuff and, and even the people that tend to get the practical right tend to ignore the psychological. Um, but the but the subconscious mind's more important in all of this than the conscious mind. And so you you want to you want to take the trouble to cater to both. And so the, the psychological stuff is putting yourself into an environment that is conducive to uh, productively doing whatever the job at hand is. Um, and so, if you're gonna if you're gonna paint landscapes, um, you're probably not gonna do that with optimum effectiveness in the same physical environment where you would do your bookkeeping. Uh, the, the, the tasks are completely different, and the, they warrant totally different em, environments. Um, and so, a lot of people um, they they don't really get their subconscious minds engaged because they don't they don't really get into the right place to do the work at hand. Um, we just, it's fresh in my mind because we were just at Disney with my wealth coaching group and we had lunch with two of the Disney Imagineers, which is their language for their, uh, I guess you would call them creative staff. They're responsible for everything from designing and building new attractions to complete parks to figuring out signage that'll actually help people find the restrooms. And, um, The one here who's the guy who built a very large company and sold it, I would say he's about my age, so this is not some kid. But, you know, when they're going to go into a meeting and work on an attraction, they take a half an hour and go out and they ride a few rides first. And, you know, what they're doing is sort of giving the subconscious an opportunity to, to get in gear with the work at hand, um, and they're going to do that in a different place than they're going to go work on budgets and forecasts. And so there's, you know, there's the psychological component, and, and I do it a lot with place, and, and I do it a lot with what I call psychological triggers. The objects and the and the photographs and the paintings, the what the stuff that you see uh, immediately around you uh, in your particular work environment. Um, the, the the practical side of this is, you know, uh, uh, the stuff that you need close by, and and a work environment um, now that facilitates efficiency. I mean, as silly as it is, on one hand, like of all the great Christmas gifts I got from everybody this year, the 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 thing that has contributed most to productivity has been the little plug-in-the-wall coffee warmer thing. You set your cup on.
1: Some people use that as a candle warmer too. It,
0: oh, really? Yeah, that's but that's how they were originally designed. Extremely unlikely that I'd be using it as a candle warmer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I actually have electric candles, you know, the ones that plug in the wall and they, you know, and you can take off. Of course you do. Of course, of course Um, you do. (laughs) uh, But Mr. Romance. (laughs) Yeah. Well. um, But uh, uh, but I realized after I was using it that I was probably in the first thing in the morning, if I'm writing in a two hour span, I was probably getting up and leaving three times to go dump half a cup of cold coffee and make another pot, cup of hot coffee and this little puppy keeps the original cup warm and so you know it's got a treasured place now in in the cockpit in, in the work environment where where I write and I mean I watch people who are really goofy about this from a practical standpoint I mean that you know they'll have their thesaurus and their their words that sell book and the other reference stuff that they use on a bookshelf that they have to get up out of their chair and walk over in order to get it and bring it back to the desk where they write. And the equivalent, I, um, this is probably 19, so here I have my ad agency business, so this is 1974, 75 in uh, Akron, Ohio. And I was going to a meeting with the owner of one of the largest ad agencies in Akron, which is a little bit like saying, you know, the world's tallest midget. But, I mean, (laughs) you know, nevertheless, at the time, this was a big deal. And this guy had a big reputation in town. And we had the meeting on a Saturday. And so I get to his office, and he's out cutting the grass in front of the office building which in and of itself is off-putting to me.
1: I would think.
0: But um,
1: doesn't say much for his prosperity mindset.
0: Well unless it's unless it's your hobby Yeah. you know and you like do that I mean I I tell people you know when I when I moved from from here to Arizona one of the things I really looked forward to because I'd never been to Phoenix before was an end to driving around and watching all these imbeciles out cutting their grass, and now uh, now coming back. By the way, now they spend their entire weekend uh, shuttling between their yard and Home Depot, so it's like they have a second job. But it always irritated me because either they're too cheap to pay a neighborhood kid to cut the grass, and their time's got to be worth more than that, you know. Uh, it's just silly. And when you, when I got to Phoenix, by the way, they were all out raking their gravel. So same deal. <laughs> uh, but hilarious. So, 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 so anyway, I get to this guy's office and he's out cutting the grass, right? And, and he's almost finished with the little square grass in front of the office, so I walk over and he says just be a couple minutes longer. And he has, we're standing there talking, one of the wheels on the lawnmower comes loose. He then, with me tagging along, he picks up, he drags the lawnmower, carrying now the, the loose wheel. He drags the lawnmower all the way into the building and down a hall, all the way to the back of the building to where there's a little storage area, a little workshop, where there's a wrench with which he puts the wheel back on and then drags the lawnmower all the way back to the front of the building. By then I decided I didn't want the meeting because clearly the guy's too big of a bonehead, you know, to do business with. I mean, how about going and getting a ranch, or better yet, how about if this is a reoccurring problem, how about either getting a lawn mower fixed by somebody who knows what they're doing, buying a new mower, or having the tool with you when you're out cutting the grass. I mean, there's 48 smarter things to do than than what he did, but it's analogy for the way a lot of people arrange and function, uh, arrange their environments and function in their environments. And if you go to their offices or you go to their places of business or you go to their home offices, wherever they work, and you take a look at how they're working, from a practical standpoint, it's, it's incredibly inefficient um, and, uh, and, and not supportive of, of a productive approach. So, I, you know, I think environment is critically important psychologically and from a practical standpoint. Again, I don't think people give enough thought to it. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts, make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the Diamond Members Only podcast as well. On top of that, you'd also get access to the whole enchilada with all dance
1: courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to Diamond Now by going to diamondupgrade.com.